series at Life Church this morning, walking through the Apostles' Creed. More on that in just a few moments, but um, this is something that I've been praying toward and preparing for for about a year, and so um, I don't think people really resonated with this image, but uh, I, I liken myself to like a bottle of soda that somebody's just been shaking for a year and then opened and like I'm going to spew all over you this morning is really kind of how I feel um, about this time that we have together. But no, um, many people have been praying uh, for us as we lean into this. I'm excited to jump into this series with you. That's why we need Romans 10, 9, and 10. And again, I'll be there in just a minute with you. Sue would freely admit that she doesn't know all that much about the Bible. Right? She attends church regularly. She has for years. Uh, but she's always chosen the church that she attends, not based on the depth or the substance of its teaching or the prayers or the songs. She's chosen the church that she attends based on how she feels when she's there. Right? The thing that matters most to Sue is the experience of worship. And because that's what matters most to Sue, she's just never really bothered to learn all that much about what the Bible says. That's never been a priority to her. And it shows. You can see that in Sue because she really struggles to grasp much beyond the very basic tenets of Christianity. People will say spiritual things to her and if they sound good or if they're said convincingly, then she assumes that they're true, whether they're true or not. There was one time when Sue was sick for a while and someone told her that God would never will for one of his children to suffer an illness, therefore her illness must be from the devil. She really didn't know what to do with that, but she thought for a while about maybe seeking out a faith healer of some kind, somebody who would lay hands on her and heal her. But she didn't do it because she wasn't sure that her faith was good enough. Another time, um, she was really worried about her daughter. Her daughter was getting into some things online that she didn't like or understand. And a Christian friend told her that Sue had the power to, in Jesus' name, bind Satan's authority in the life of her daughter. This friend told her that if Sue did that, then she wouldn't ever have to worry about her daughter again. And so one night, late at night, when Sue was worried and anxious about her daughter, she tried it. But she's just not sure she did it right. She hasn't really seen much change in her daughter. Tom, unlike Sue, knows a lot about the Bible. Maybe his friends would say Tom knows too much about the Bible for his own good. Because you see, Tom loves a theological debate, right? He knows all of the hot button issues. He's good at sniffing out where somebody stands on a certain theological or doctrinal point, right? If you're in a Bible study with Tom, about half of his sentences begin this way. Well, actually, and then he tells you what he thinks the Bible really says. He is not shy about flexing his Bible knowledge or about subtly pointing out just how ignorant you might be. But the problem with Tom, aside from his arrogant attitude, is the fact that for Tom, every biblical issue is a divisive issue. Where the only people who can really get along with Tom are the people who think exactly the way that he thinks about everything. For Tom, doctrine always divides, always. Alice also knows 
a fair bit about what the Bible says. Fortunately, she isn't as obnoxious as Tom is. However, for Alice, the issue is that what she knows and believes, well, it just doesn't really make an impact on the way that she lives her life. Right? Alice knows, for example, that God is sovereignly in control of all things, that he rules and reigns over all of his creation. But Alice is still anxious and worried an awful lot about what people think about her, about her upcoming performance review at work, about what kind of wife and mother she is. Alice knows that God has forgiven her sin debt on the cross fully and finally and forever. But the truth is she really struggles to forgive other people as graciously as she has been forgiven. I mean, she says that she's forgiven those who have wronged her. But the truth is she still thinks about those offenses a lot. And her heart is becoming bitter. It's like a spring that's just like wound up super tight about to snap. Alice knows that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. She knows that she can't add to her standing in God's eyes or subtract from her standing in God's eyes. Yet still, deep in her heart, Alice worries that she's just not measuring up to what God expects of her. She worries that God is silently and perpetually disappointed in her. And she really wonders if that's why he isn't answering her prayers the way that he, she expects him to. Sue, Tom, Alice. Fictitious people, to be clear, though their stories are real enough. Each of them illustrate in different ways why Christians in 2022 need the Apostles' Creed. They illustrate why we need the Apostles' Creed. Now, despite its name, none of the words of the Apostles' Creed were written by any of the 12 apostles of Jesus. The Creed is called the Apostles' Creed because the church has, for almost 2,000 years, recognized its teaching to be a faithful and clear and true summary of the teaching of the Apostles through the New Testament. The present form of the Apostles' Creed, the one that we're gonna read here in a minute, it dates back to around 700 AD. However, much of the wording in the Creed traces back much, much earlier to baptismal confessions that the church was using within about 100 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, there are early church fathers in the first century, men like Tertullian and Irenaeus, you can like drop their names into your lunch conversation to sound smart in front of your friends if you want. But Tertullian and Irenaeus, they taught that there was something called a rule of faith, like a statement of basic Christian doctrine that the church agreed upon and accepted. And theologians today believe that the rule of faith that Irenaeus and Tertullian talked about was what we now call the Apostles' Creed, which simply means that the Apostles' Creed, it's the oldest and most widely utilized summary of true biblical Christian doctrine in all of history. Now I know that some of us, um, we have a little bit of history with the Apostles' Creed, and then there are others of us who maybe have never heard of it at all until you walked in the room this morning. 
So if you've come from a Catholic or Lutheran or Anglican background, then it's very possible that you recited the creed week after week after week in the church gatherings that you were a part of before you came to a church like ours. And so maybe when you heard that we were about to talk about the Apostles' Creed for 15 weeks, maybe you were really geeked up about that. Or maybe, on the other hand, you thought, man, I don't know why in the world we would waste our time talking about something that smells like cold, dead liturgy to me. On the flip side of that, if you've come from a modern Baptist background, not an historic Baptist background, by the way, but just a modern Baptist background, or if you've come out of most non-denominational churches today, or if you have no background in the church at all, then this whole creed thing is probably gonna be brand new to you. And so you might be a little bit curious about it, you might be a little bit suspicious about it, I don't know. But let me just give a few caveats before we read the creed for the first time in this space. Here's the first one. This is important to me that you know this. Right, while we're gonna spend the next 15 weeks preaching through the Apostles' Creed, Week after week, we are still going to preach from the Bible, right? We're going to preach through the creed, but you're going to see me very clearly be preaching from the Bible. And that's because the Bible and the Bible alone is the very word of God himself. The Bible and Bible alone has all of the authority that God has communicated to his people. And so the creed has authority, yes, but only so far as it reflects the authority and the truth of what God has said in his word. And so in that sense, like I think of the Bible and the creed, the way that I think of the sun and the moon, like both the sun and the moon, they give off light, they shine light, but the moon produces no light of its own. It merely reflects the light that is coming from the sun, right? You learned that in third grade earth science probably. The sun shines light, the moon reflects light. So both give light, but only one is a true source of light. And in the same way, the creed, it shines light. It points to what is true, but it points to what is true only insofar as it reflects what is true in God's word. And so we're gonna preach through the creed, but we're gonna preach from the Bible week after week as we seek to understand this ancient creed. That's the first caveat. Here's the second one. I'm about to read this creed aloud to us. Later in our gathering, I'm actually gonna ask everybody to stand and we're gonna read the creed aloud together. But even as we do that, let me assure you that Christians do not believe in like magic incantations. We don't believe that there's something magical or mystical that happens when we simply say certain words in a certain order together. Right? Merely reciting the words of this creed, that does nothing. Merely understanding the words of this creed, even that does nothing. In order for these words to mean anything to us, we must believe them. And so what does it mean to say, I believe and the words and teaching of the Apostles' Creed? Well, that's what Romans 10 is gonna help us understand this morning. This morning we're just tackling those first two words of the creed, I believe. But before we turn to Romans 10, let me read the words of the Apostles' Creed to us and for us. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. You should probably like circle on your calendar the week we're talking about that. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the, and notice the lowercase letters, Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does it mean to say, I believe the words of the Apostles' Creed? Romans 10 will help us. In Romans 10, Paul is discussing the message of the gospel. He's especially emphasizing the fact that the salvation that's offered in the gospel is available to all people by grace and through faith. And then he writes this in verse nine. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For about 12 years, I had the good, good fortune of serving on the pastoral staff of a church in Amarillo, Texas. Um, I can't overstate like how much this church has blessed me in my life, how formative my years among them and serving them really were for me. Um, I started attending that church when I was 18 years old. It was really the first church that I had ever regularly attended in my life. I was mentored and discipled by pastors on the staff of that church. I'm still friends with people who serve on that church staff. Um, Man, this church, like they were just so, so good to me. My wife and I, we were married in the sanctuary of that church. Um, I was eventually ordained for pastoral ministry on the stage of that church. And I just can continue to count the ways that I was richly blessed by the saints there. In fact, I think that even you are being richly blessed by the saints there because um, for two years, that church kept me on salary when I moved halfway across the country to attend seminary. And so the theological education and formation I received there that they paid for are still paying, paying dividends today, I think in a way that serves you. And so, man, I just, I'm so grateful for the saints of that church. When I started working there, there was one woman on the staff Um, who stands out to me. Her name was Kathy. And Kathy was like superhuman. She did the work of three people. She was the admin. I think she was the bookkeeper. She handled all the publications. Kathy like just tirelessly worked for the sake of the people there, like 10 hour days every day. Like she was just a really devoted servant of the Lord. But one of the things that I remember about Kathy when I first met her is the fact that Kathy was a chain smoker. I don't know how many packs a day Kathy smoked, but it was a lot. Um, she would you know, take a break every hour or two hours and head out to her car for a few minutes and light one up and then she'd come back in and you would always be able to smell no matter what she sprayed on herself, right? You'd always be able to smell the nicotine on her clothes and on her breath. And when I first got to know Kathy, <clears throat> I realized that she had been trying for a number of years to quit smoking. Right, she had tried the patch, she had tried the gum, she had you know, done hypnosis, like she'd done anything and everything that she could do to try to quit the habit of smoking and just nothing worked for her, no matter how hard she tried. Then one day, 
Kathy's 70-year-old mother, who was also a chain smoker, was diagnosed with lung cancer. And I can tell you that that was the last day that I ever saw Kathy sneak out to her car for a smoke break. It was the last day that I ever smelled nicotine on her clothes or on her breath. She got that news and she quit immediately cold turkey. Why? Well, to use the language of the Apostles' Creed or to use the language of Romans 10, Kathy went from knowing that smoking could kill you to believing that smoking could kill you. I mean, think about what happened inside of her when she got that phone call, right? She didn't get new information about the dangers of smoking. She was well aware of all that information already. That's why she had tried to quit so many times beforehand. Now, there was no new discovery, no new scientific breakthrough that informed her about the dangers of smoking. What happened was the information that Kathy already had suddenly became real to her in a way that changed her life. She went from knowing that smoking could kill you to believing that smoking could kill you. Do you see that here in our passage? Right, Paul, he's talking in verse nine and he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So notice, Paul doesn't say, if you confess with your mouth and know in your head, he says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Why is that significant? Well, notice what he adds in verse 10. He says, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. What's the difference between knowing that something is true and believing that that something is true. Well, simply put, knowing information, it doesn't always lead to action, right? I know a lot of things that I don't let transform the way I behave. I know, for example, that drinking like two pots of coffee every day, like it's not good for me. I know that, but that does not stop me from drinking two pots of coffee every day, right? That information that is in my head has not moved to my heart and changed the way that I live. But when you believe something, it moves from your head to your heart and it leads to transformation. What Paul is stressing here in Romans is that it's not enough merely to know the facts that Jesus is Lord. It's not enough to merely know the facts that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. It is not enough to know merely the facts that Jesus rose from the grave in glorious victory over sin and Satan and death. And it is not enough to know merely the facts that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, knowing those facts is critical but one must do more than know those facts. One must believe these things, Paul says, in order to be justified, in order to be saved. But what does true belief in those things look like? I mean, that's the question that's in front of us today and the entire time we're gonna study this creed together. What does it mean to believe the words of the Apostles' Creed in your heart truly? Well, the Bible teaches us really three key things about true belief. First, the Bible emphasizes that true belief engages your intellect. 
right? It's something that, that matters in your mind. Secondly, the Bible teaches that true belief, it commands your will. Like it shows up in what you do and the way you use your hands and the way you walk and the things that you do. And then finally, the Bible teaches that true belief transforms your affections. It's a matter of your heart. And so let's talk about each of those three things briefly today. And we're doing this, we're gonna keep coming back to these three things each week as we unpack the creed line after line after line, understanding how true belief truly shows up in our lives. So first, true belief engages your intellect. You might remember Sue from earlier in the message. Sue craved a deep experience with God, but she didn't really desire to learn deep things about God. Right, though she probably doesn't realize it, Sue doesn't really believe the truth in her heart because she's never tried to wrap her mind around the truth. I mean, think about this in light of what Paul says here in Romans. Paul points to propositions. He points to facts, to specific truths. He says, Jesus is Lord. That's a fact, not a feeling. God raised him from the dead. That's a fact, not a feeling. It's not an impression. They are truths. And unless one grabs those truths intellectually and clings to them, one cannot believe in those truths truly. Now, when the early church confessed the Apostles' Creed together, at the same time, they were declaring rebellion against the lies that the world and culture in which they live were telling them and pledging allegiance to Jesus as Lord, right? So at the same time, they were saying no to certain things and yes to other realities. They were saying no and rebelling against the lies that their world taught them and saying yes to the truth of the Bible. And so for example, like in the ancient Roman world, Romans believed not that Jesus was Lord, they believed that Caesar was Lord. In fact, they believed that Caesar was somehow divine, that he was born from the gods and that he was a god himself. And so anytime a new Caesar was installed as emperor of the Roman Empire, he was honored as deity. And so when the early Christians stood together and they confessed, not that Caesar was Lord, but that Jesus was Lord, they were rebelling against the lies that their world was telling them and they're pledging their allegiance to the Christ of Scripture. Now, today in 2022, when we confess the Apostles' Creed, we're gonna have to do the same thing, right? We're gonna have to declare rebellion against the lies that our world is telling us, and we're gonna have to pledge our allegiance to the Christ of Scripture. One lie that we're gonna have to reject and rebel against in order to really believe the Apostles' Creed, right, it's the lie that we should reject all propositional truths altogether. That's a lie that our culture teaches us. Our culture teaches us that you have a truth and that that truth belongs to you and that I have a truth and that truth belongs to me. And that's even how our culture talks about truth, right? It's your truth and my truth. And our culture rejects the premise of the fact that there's a truth that transcends your truth and my truth. Our culture rejects the idea that there's any true truth and it says that we get to define what is truth for ourselves. Now, I hope you know that that is nonsense. I hope that's actually a lie that's easy for you to reject. 
in the least, right, we can reject that because we should recognize that that's like hypocritical, right? To say that there are no absolute truth claims is to make an absolute truth claim. And so anybody who tells you that there's no such thing as true truth, only your truth and my truth, is violating the very laws that they're trying to establish, right? And so there's a hypocrisy there. I hope we can reject that. If we're going to believe the Apostles' Creed, we're going to have to reject the lie that we have authority and power inside of ourselves to declare what is true and what isn't. But there's another lie that we're going to need to rebel against that I think is is probably more dangerous for Christians today. It's the lie that says that feelings and experiences are what's really important. What concerns me today is the way that Christians in our culture try to hold onto a form of Christianity that doesn't require their intellect at all. They try to hold on to a faith that is all feelings and all experiences, and they don't engage their minds, their intellects, and therefore they don't really know what Christians believe. They don't know the truth that they think they believe in, and they're content to not know the truth that they think they believe in. Over the last few years, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Christian Resources have partnered together to launch and maintain a survey that documents what people in America, especially self-proclaimed evangelical Protestants, believe about the Bible and what the Bible says. And so you can actually see the full results of the survey online. The website is thestateoftheology.com. If you wanna read it, you can, but I'll just tell you the results of the survey, they're troubling. For example, The survey asked respondents to agree or disagree with this statement. Quote, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. End quote. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, 52% of everyone who responded to the survey, Christian, non-Christian, all grouped together, 52% of the people who responded to the survey, they agreed with that statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 36% disagreed. That's not really that surprising to me, if we're honest. What was surprising is the fact that among Christians, among people who identified themselves as evangelical Protestants, who believe that they have a born-again relationship with the living God, 30% of the Christians who answered that survey agreed with that statement. 30% of people who think they're Christians in our country do not believe that Jesus is God. That's sobering. Here's another example. The survey revealed that, well, six out of 10 Americans, again, we're back to Christians and non-Christians, but six out of 10 Americans believe in a literal heaven. Less than half think that you need Jesus in order to get there. In addition, While six out of 10 Americans also believe in a literal hell, six out of 10, or I'm sorry, two thirds think that people are by nature pretty good. In other words, we think hell is a real thing, but we just don't think there are gonna be that many people there. Here's what I'm getting at. True belief, it requires that we know better what the Bible actually says. Right, true belief, it engages your intellect. It requires you to know what you believe. 
and we don't. I mean, the church today just really doesn't know what the Bible says. C.S. Lewis, he wrote once, he said, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones. Church, we must engage our intellects. We must study God's word. We must seek to know what the Bible truly teaches us about God so that we can truly believe what the Bible teaches us about God. That's why true belief, it engages your intellect. Secondly, true belief commands your will. Right, according to the Bible, true belief, it is welded to obedience. The Bible makes no accommodation. It leaves no room for someone who believes the truth, but then doesn't strive to obey that truth. Or think about it this way. If you read the Gospels, like the stories of Jesus' life and ministry, do you know who the first beings are to recognize the truth of who Jesus is? The first beings to recognize the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Holy One, the Son of God, the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins, the one who has power over sin and Satan and death. The first beings to recognize that are demons in every one of the Gospels. The theology of those demons is usually pretty good. They have a firm intellectual handle on what is true and what is not. The problem is their intellectual knowledge does not translate to worship or to obedience. And so they do not have true belief. We saw the Apostle James make the same point as we studied the book of James over the summer. Just a few weeks ago, we read in James chapter 2, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, the thing is the belief of the demons It stops short of obedience. It stops short of worship. Therefore, it is not true biblical belief. R.C. Sproul commented on this verse when he says, to give intellectual assent to the things of God only elevates a person from the status of pagan to the level of the demon. It advances the soul not a centimeter into the kingdom of God. It advances the soul, not a centimeter into the kingdom of God. Satan assents to the facts, but does not possess saving faith. The New Testament teaches that the individual must act upon the content of his or her faith. True belief, it commands your will. It reveals itself in obedience to the truths that are believed If we know things about God, but those things do not change the way we live our lives, then we don't truly believe those things. And I fear that there are some, perhaps many around us, who fall into this category, right? We believe the Apostles' Creed because of how we've been raised or even where we've been raised. But we don't really believe because the things we think we believe they don't actually translate into action in our lives. True belief, it commands your will. Third thing, true belief transforms your affections. 
Or to put that another way, true belief, it reshapes what you love. People with true belief, they, they set their hearts on God. They pursue him. They seek after him. They desire him. Right? The Psalms speak over and over and over again about someone who delights in the Lord, who delights in his laws and his attributes, his purposes and his works. David in Psalm 24, just as one example, he said, one thing I've asked of the Lord One thing that I will seek after. So this is the one thing that David is praying. He says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so David is saying that this is the one thing, right? His one desire, the one thing that he seeks after or yearns for in his life, the one thing that he feels is worth pursuing with his whole entire life is to be in the temple of the Lord and to be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now we might all agree that it would be pretty awesome to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We might all agree that it would be good to be in the temple of the Lord. But David says that's the only thing he desires, the one thing he longs for. He simply doesn't desire anything else. He doesn't want anything more. Which means that in order to say we believe the Apostles' Creed, we are going to have to rebel. This time against the things that our world tells us will satisfy us. We're going to have to rebel against the lie that we really need more in order to be happy more money or more power or more success or more sex. We're gonna have to rebel against the lie that we need new circumstances in order to find joy. We're gonna have to rebel against the lie that God himself isn't enough to bring us joy, to fill us up, to give us eternal pleasures forevermore at his right hand. That's what's necessary in order for us to believe the Apostles' Creed. We must engage these truths with our minds. We must allow these truths to command our wills. And we must let these truths transform our affections. I pray that the Lord accomplishes those things in the weeks that are ahead of us. Now before we turn the corner today and prepare ourselves to celebrate Holy Communion together, Um, In just a moment, I'm going to invite everyone to stand, and we're going to read aloud the Apostles' Creed together for the first time. Um, I'm going to invite you to stand because uh, for 2,000 years almost, Christians have stood when they've recited the Creed. It has cost some of them their lives to stand and recite the Creed, but this is one of the ways that Christians have responded to the authority of these words. And so, Um, You can go ahead and do that now if you would. If you're a Christian, go ahead and stand. And if you're a non-Christian and you're with us, you can stand too. We're gonna read these words aloud together. If you're with us and you're not a believer in Jesus, you can maybe just read along silently as we do this. But if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, then I encourage you to read these these words aloud with me. Let's recite the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. I have a friend whose family owns a working cattle ranch in the Poudre Valley um, in Northern Colorado. And uh, on a few occasions, my family and I, we've been invited to join him there. And uh, I'll just tell you, it's like heaven on earth to me, right? The mountains surround you on either side. Early in the morning, you can sit out on the back porch, a cup of coffee in your hand. You can hear the river. You can see the deer and the elk and the moose crossing the valley as the mist evaporates in the early morning. It is, uh, it's just a spectacular place. We long to go and jump at the opportunity to go every time we're invited. One of the house rules, if you go to the ranch, um, is that you're gonna spend at least a little bit of your time contributing to the operation of the ranch. That's just what, how the family rolls. And so when you go, you need to like pitch in a little bit. You can't just spend all of your time kicking your heels up. And so there was this one day when my friend and I were there and um, we, we tore out a stand of aspen trees that were in the way of where the rancher wanted to run a new line of fence. And so, man, I remember we took, you know, chainsaws and pickaxes and shovels and every tool that you can imagine. And like we went at these trees and these trees just kept coming back at us, right? I mean, they were incredibly deeply rooted. Like it was, a, it was a solid day's work. Eventually, of course, you know, we're like hitching multiple pickup trucks up to the stumps of these trees, just trying to drag them out of the ground. And it was, it was a day of labor. I don't really know how long those trees had been in the ground. All I know is how deeply rooted they were because they did not give way easily. Church, I want your belief to be deeply rooted, just like those trees. Where roots are deep, right? Hard freezes, they don't kill. Storms don't tend to uproot. Trees bear fruit year after year after year. I want your belief in the truth to resemble those trees. I'm praying that our study of the Apostles' Creed together these 15 weeks, that it will help us root ourselves in belief that shapes our intellects, our wills, and our affections for the Lord. Let's pray that God would allow that among us. Father, we ask that you would give us roots that are buried deep in your truth, we acknowledge, Lord, that that will mean that we understand your truth better than perhaps we do today. It means we're going to be pressed with our minds to know you better. We believe, Lord, that that means that your truth will command the way we live our lives and that we can't 
complacently or casually fail to live in light of the truth that we believe. And we believe, Father, that your truth will will transform our hearts, that it will reshape the things that we desire and love, that it will build new affections in the place of old, empty, worldly affections. We need you to move in us in these ways. And I pray that in the time that is ahead of us, you would grow in each of us and that you would grow in our community, deep, solid roots buried into your truth that we might be immovable, fruitful, and enduring trees for your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can see that